I think we're going to have much more of a collective consciousness of both the opportunities and challenges of people living longer. Aging isn't necessarily just a series of losses, but there are gains in that as well. Uh, emotional intelligence, experience, uh, perspective, uh, a much more appreciation of the complexity of life, a lot, number of gains. Hi, I'm Gary Beagle, your host of the Bourbon with Beagle podcast. Join me for a deep dive discussion with Jay Bloom from Bloom Anew as part of our new six episode series, Bourbon with Generations That Can Legally Drink or Not. As an executive and personal coach to leaders, managers, and individuals in the private, philanthropic, and government sectors, our first guest helps us explore that touchy topic that affects us all, aging. What are the opportunities and challenges of people living longer? Should baby boomers be paying it forward because of the policies they benefited from? Is it time to blow up the corporate ladder? And of course, you can't miss Jay's four secret ingredients to living longer better. Well, I'd like to welcome Jay Bloom with me this afternoon for our session of uh, bourbon with generations that can legally drink or not drink. And so we're actually discussing all of the generational aspects with each generation and guests from those generational components. So, Jay, thank you and welcome. And first of all, what generation are you in, Jay? I would be in the boomer generation. Boomer generation. Born in 1951. Right there with you on the right there. So we're both boomers, so we can give a pretty good perspective on this. What is the, the general philosophy, your general philosophy on aging as a, as a boomer? My, my thoughts on that is I was asked to speak to a group not too long ago. And on what they, the topic was, what would be the attributes of successful aging? Mm -hmm. And it came to me, the word ACME. And Acme, uh, in, you know, I originally thought it was just due with Wiley Coyote um, <laughs> and the Roadrunner, but Acme is a real word, and it means the apex or pinnacle of something. Mm -hmm. And I take those four letters, and the A stands for attitude. And my belief is, regardless of age, your attitude uh, is critical. Do you feel like you're there? You have some agency that you can do some, you have some influence over your life, regardless of right. circumstance. So the first letter would be A. The C. And you know, and you know oh, Jay, that's interesting because when I talked to a millennial previously, they brought up the age for them is mind is one component of aging and body. So, in, you know, attitude is what they were talking about. And that generation are the ones that are actually born through 1981 to 1996. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they had a little perspective like that as well. They could also stand for, if you didn't, didn't attitude could be adaptation. Uh -huh. How do you adapt, in fact, to, the, uh, to your present circumstances? The C for me stands for connection and relationships and particularly uh, personal and familial relationships. That's, you know, as you, nothing's more of a detriment, I think, at any stage of life than isolation. And so the C stands for connection. M for me in ACME is meaning or purpose. I've heard more people say, particularly as they age, I have to have some reason to get up in the morning. 
have to have some purpose, some meaning. And then E for me stands for exercise for both the mind and the body, mm-hmm. uh, the philosophy, use it or lose it. So uh, with those four key ingredients, those are my philosophy on how to age well. Great. Acme, that's a great uh, way of looking at aging and to determine that. So what do you think about the, the name Boomer for our generation? Well, uh, it's become somewhat of a lightning rod uh, for uh, controversy at times. Mm-hmm. You know, whether in fact we were a generous generation or whether we've just been all about I. Clearly, uh, probably more than any other generation, it's been studied and is uh, used in the media quite a bit. Uh, the problem I have with the term is that there's just tremendous diversity within mm-hmm. that. Within that. And, uh, you know, the old philosophy, the old thought is you meet one 60 year old, you've met one 60 year old. Uh, you can find a 60 year old that's fairly struggling with physical issues. You can find a 60 year old who's a grandparent. You can find a 60 year old who just starting to be a parent. Right. So it's not as much of a descriptor anymore where you are in that generation. I've heard the term transitional generation in discussing some things with, with folks and the, what they're talking about is we were the first generation to go from non-technology to technology. So we transitioned and other generations have been able to build upon that success that, that our generation had in technology. So I, I think the boomer itself and connotation of that is a little misleading. And I think you brought that very pointedly with the 60 year old analysis. So I think that's great. One of the things when we talk to the younger generations uh, about the boomer generation, their, their take on us is very diversified. And one of the things I set, talked to, to uh, one of the millennials about was it's the I versus the me type of, of philosophy that we have, we're taking but not contributing back. How would, how would you, do you view that the same or, or how can we, if you do, how can we change that perception? And- <laughs> how can we change that perception is definitely a big, a big question. I'm not sure, not sure I uh, accept that assumption because I, I go back in our lifetime and uh, uh, the, our generation was very active in civil rights and gay mm-hmm. rights and environmental consciousness anti-war, there was a fair amount of initially kind of group thing, you know, groups consciousness. I think with time, some of that has evaporated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's generally true in our overall culture, mm-hmm. not just for the boomers, where I think there's a clearly a challenge today on how much are people thinking in terms of an I statement, smaller and smaller tribes. Mm-hmm. versus uh, our interdependence with others. I, I want to tack back before I forget it, your, your, your statement about a transition generation around technology. And I, I think it depends on how you define technology. So I can remember uh, starting off working with a manual typewriter. And then there was a, uh, a typewriter that had a little bit of memory in it. And then there was a computer that had a little bit of software in it and so on and so forth. So there's been an evolution of technology, you know, pretty much in all generations. Uh, I remember my grandfather who uh, 
was born in 1899 and was a farmer from Sweden, and he first farmed with horses. And when he finally retired, uh, he was definitely doing a mechanical uh, tractor and all the evolution in farm machinery, whatever. So uh, I agree that we've had a lot of transition in the last few years. Uh, You know, the iPhone itself, I think, only being over only 10 years old. But each generation, I think, has had their challenges and how they navigate the evolution of uh, different tools. So what do you think our generation has contributed for for other generations? Well, I touched on that earlier a little bit with some of the the social justice Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. very early being a part of that. I mean, uh, given the turbulence of the last couple of years, probably the one of the key similar periods that people often refer to is like 1968, which was a very turbulent year that had both the assassination of uh, of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, uh, the Chicago uh, uh, Democratic Convention. There was just a lot of of turmoil and whatnot during that period of time. But I think that those those concerns around social justice were very active Mm -hmm. in that period, and I think have continued. The environmental movement, I think, was very much a part of those early years as well. Right. So why do you think that our generation hasn't been advocating for aging in the same way we, they did back in 68, changing how we take care of older Americans and older individuals? A term that I think is going to become even more prominent in the upcoming years, given the size of our demographic, is just the whole realization of the negative effects of ageism. Mm-hmm. You know, ageism, I'm, I'm a, it's one of the most uniform isms that we still all have. Uh, the best definition I heard of that not too long ago was ageism is prejudice against our future self. And you would ask anyone uh, who's an older person, almost regardless of age, they're going to pick somebody 10 years older than they are. Uh, I can remember my father, uh, who lived to 87, who he's 80 years old, uh, delivering meals on wheels to the old people. Right. Uh, at 80, he didn't consider himself old. So uh, there's just a denial to some degree that we're all aging from birth. Right. And that um, it's a normal part of the life cycle. I think also in the media, it's one of the last areas that still has active uh, ageism, where uh, there's the making fun of older folks, et cetera. Ironically, uh, our current president is 79. Yeah. Ironically, Betty White just died last week and she was 99 and considered a very hip kind of person with tons of followers, et cetera. So we're, we're in that transition of older adults living longer and more engaged and healthier. Do you know one of the interesting things is I interviewed uh, – uh, true wear of the generation Z, which is born between 1997 and 2012. And she said that one of the things that they needed to work on uh, was discrimination against ageism. And this is from that generation. So I think it's really interesting that that younger generation is picking up on the ageism side of things as well. Why do you, uh, with being so vocal back in the 60s, the boomer generation, 
why haven't we advocated for more treatment like for Alzheimer's, dementia, better medical treatments, better housing for seniors and that sort of thing? Is there maybe something? Again, I would say um, it's not something we have in our consciousness. You know, it's not something we want to think about. Right. Uh, There's, uh, you you know, some folks have suggested that it's all tied to our sense of mortality and and death and that we don't, we haven't really been okay talking about that uh, in our normal culture. Uh, You think of all the topics we do talk about, what uh, the fact that human beings are, have a finite lifespan. Uh, is not one of those topics. So right. we we all we all owe God a death, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. Um, and I just think there's just a reluctance to to talk about that in any way, shape, or form. No, I think I think that that's very correct. I'm just uh, kind of taken back when I look at the treatments for Alzheimer's disease, for example. We just came out with a new drug that is somewhat effective, but not truly effective if I'm reading things correctly, $36,000 a year for treatment. And it's the first new drug, I think, in 10 years or longer. And so it's just really mind boggling to me that our generation hasn't used the same type of activism that we did in the 68 to make sure that we have these things available since it affects our our, uh, generation so much. It's just interesting to me. I think one of the hopeful areas, Gary, in regards to that, is that the the aging of adults on the planet is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's rapidly impacting, uh, you know, countries, whether it's China, Japan, Europe, uh, Canada, et cetera. And so I think we're going to have much more of a collective consciousness of both the opportunities and challenges of people living longer. And clearly Alzheimer's, I think, will be one of those areas where uh, there's going to be a fair amount of, um, I think, investment Mm -hmm. and attention, particularly for the pharmaceutical and the biotech companies on how, in fact, we can address that going forward. Now, how quickly they will be effective I'm not sure in any way, shape, or form, but uh, I'm pretty confident it's not just going to be segmented to the U.S. Right. I think most of the Alzheimer's research is coming from other countries, not the U.S. And so I think that's that's you're correct in the collective consciousness we're all having to deal with. This as a as society matures, not by age, <laughs> that we need to address that. I know you work on and have developed aging plans. So how does your, the aging plan take into effect these, the num- pure number of boomers that we have coming on board? For, for me, the key is uh, recognizing the, the both longevity, how long people live, and how many health years they have for mm-hmm. me, how many healthy years. The fancy technical term is compression of morbidity or active life expectancy. So uh, it's one thing to live to age 90 and still have a pretty vital and, and uh, engaged life. It's quite another to have to live to age 90 and those last you know, 10 years of that has been uh, suffering and et cetera. Uh, 
So I think the key for me is how can we increase active life expectancy? What are the key ingredients we can help people? And again, I I go back to that ACME word, Mm -hmm. you know, to the degree that we encourage people to have agency, that aging isn't necessarily just a series of losses, but there are gains in that as well. Uh, Emotional intelligence, experience, uh, perspective a much more appreciation of the complexity of life, a number of gains to the degree that we keep people engaged and and not isolated. Uh, used to be one of our goals was to age in place. Now I think a more a stronger approach would be to age in community. How do we help support people uh, to stay engaged in the in, in relationships? And that meaning and purpose uh, is huge. Um, it's just not a matter of how to live longer physically and emotionally, but to what degree does a person have a purpose that they, uh, they're still needed. And frankly, again, uh, how do we continue to reinforce the need to exercise, you know, physically and mentally, uh, and keep our brains, uh, growing, uh, as we're finding out scientifically that the brain can add synapses right up to the day you die. Right. So, uh, you know, we're not organized. We don't think of that. For the most part, our formal systems at the federal level, the state level, and the local level, for the most part, are all organized around a deficit model of, of you know, deterioration versus how do we optimize mm-hmm. so that uh, we can help people live longer, uh, better, and can help them thrive. And so and- that would be my, my key area. Absolutely. Uh, I just received, someone just sent me a statistical data that baby boomers are working nine years longer than they Mm. used to. And I think that that is probably true from the ones that are, that I know that are part of the baby boomer generation. They tend to be working longer. Does that, do you think that contributes to, to a little bit of the ACME model that you described earlier? You know, again, um, it's, it, it's always you're always vulnerable when you start to to generalize. I think again, mm-hmm. people work uh, sometimes for for uh, social reasons. Sometimes I think people often work because they have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, one of the downsides of living longer is you need more income. You need to work longer in order to support the cost of living longer. Right. Um, and uh, but you know again the boomer generation has been pointed out is the most educated older cohort that we've ever had and uh so a number of those folks aren't ready physically mentally whatever to stop working they want to continue to contribute and in many cases they're on the top of their game mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of their capabilities whenever again i there's a- where you regardless of where you are on the Political spectrum. Both our last two presidents have been in their seventies, right? <laughs> and and I had a discussion earlier about how it seems like that the boomer generation is just staying on instead of seeing themselves as needing to leave in the political arena specifically and allow younger generations to come forth or mentoring them a little bit. And uh, that's what the, the millennials are, are saying is that, that at some point we have to turn the torch over to, to 
young. Yeah, I mean, the political maybe the political one may be true. I think in other settings, in the private, yeah. governmental, and in philanthropic sectors, I think older adults are many of them are interested in other roles than just being in charge. Right. Where they may very well be interested in more of a part-time role. Right. or uh, in a more informal mentoring role so that they don't necessarily s- assume that an older adult always wants to be the one in charge. For charge. Yeah, I think the political arena is probably the <laughs> not the exception. best uh, exception to the rule. You're absolutely correct. What do you think um, our generation could have done better for future generations? Well, I think I think, you know, whether it was, I don't know if it was, truly intentional, but other authorities better than me have pointed out that we've we've evolved in a much more segregated living than we used to. Historically, there was much more uh, multi-generational living in Mm -hmm. communities. And um, I think maybe unintentionally, we didn't realize that when we created, you know, some of these retirement communities in Florida and Arizona, we just further exacerbated age segregation rather than thinking more uh, comprehensive. Um, I was on a school board in Massachusetts in the 70s, and I think a big mistake was not realizing with the evolution of lifelong learning, we didn't think of schools as more of community centers versus just for, you know, from primary, primary to secondary education. You know, it's a mistake now to think that a kid who graduates from high school is not going to be needing education throughout their lifetime. And I think that's true for anyone now, you know, any boomer who's in their 60s or early 70s. Um, next 20 years is going to be a lot of learning opportunities. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Absolutely correct on that. <laughs> and our institutions, you know, if we you say that we've been the principal architects of the current institutions, we're really not designed that way. I know most college presidents have not thought about their institutions trying to attract all generations, not just Mm -hmm. a younger generation. Well, that's interesting. And I've been asking the question is, do you have friends, not family, friends in other generations that you discuss things with or talk to them about? Absolutely. Absolutely. That it's, um, there's a fellow by the name of Chip Conley who wrote a book, The Modern Elder, and he had a chapter in that. He he was a worked with the two young founders in their 20s. He was in their 50s. He's now turned 60. But in his early 50s, these two young, young folks in their 20s approached him and said, We have a business, we have a model for a super technology, but we don't know the hospitality industry or how to bring things to scale. And they asked him to be the chief strategy officer. And it was for a company that became Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And he, the, he wrote a chapter in this book, The Modern Elder, that said, I was a mentor. <laughs> I was both a mentor and an intern. I mentored the younger generation around emotional intelligence and things of that nature. They, they mentored me as an intern. Mm-hmm on some of the technology and other tools. Sure. So I think that the key part of that message is the, the mutual learning. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm very pleased to have a number of folks throughout the generation that mentor me or I intern with them and vice versa, they, uh, they get something from me. 
I, the same here. I have uh, friends across the generational, and it's amazing what you pick up uh, from that, those generations on that one. Um, I've just finished a book called The Raised Us. You raised us. Now work with us, millennials, career successes, and building strong workplace teams. And it's by Lauren Stiller Ricklin. And it, it was really interesting to me to see how actually the Gen X is more lumped in with the baby boomers in their perception by millennials and the Z. But one of the things is that the millennials are really kind of united with boomers in that they kind of want to maintain the status quo. And that was one of the things that she brought out. And I thought that was very different. So on the millennials, do you get the same concept that she did in her book that millennials are a little more united with boomers than we think they are? You know, I, (laughs) again, I'm not an academic, so I'm not going to put out anything uh, authoritative uh, on that. Well, I think some are, are. some are, and some aren't. Okay. Um, In in that regards, Um, I do believe you're right that the generation X do really feel in the middle. And, and the irony again, back to that ageism issue we discussed earlier it's occurring at a younger and younger age. Mm-hmm. So you're finding a number of folks in their late 30s as they're about to turn 40, whatever, particularly in the technology field, where they're starting to feel discriminated that they're too old. Right. Now, when you again, when people 40 years old start to feel that it's getting younger. Yeah. And then vice versa, the younger generation, the folks in their uh, early 20s, whatever, they often feel discriminated as we will remember that old thing. We You don't have any experience. Right. And then you say, well, how do I get experience if I don't get a job? So uh, that was always a catch 22 growing up is, you know, we want to hire somebody with experience, but then you don't give them the opportunity to experience it. Right. I, I do believe, uh, Gary, without a doubt, and I was having lunch with a CEO today, Uh, You're going to see workplaces very much involving three generations going forward, if not four. Mm -hmm. And I think it will be one of the fastest growing areas around diversity. You know, we've we've stepped up quite a bit our awareness and investment around diversity, around race, sexual orientation, et cetera. But uh, I think the fastest growing area of diversity training going forward is going to be how do you work in multiple generations? Right. What's it like to be a 20-year-old managing somebody who could be the age of your parent or your grandfather? What's it like to be the, the aunt being managed by, you know, younger and vice versa? Um, so uh, I just think that's going to be a tremendous opportunity as we, again, face a labor shortage going mm-hmm. forward where we're going to need to retain and recruit older adults much more vigorously than we have in the past to be in the workforce. So well, they're all going to be there. That, you know, that's a great point because even with my company here, we have generational. There's three, at least three generations here. Uh, and it is an interesting task having to manage three generations and put my mindset into not being, um, to look at that generation and not have any judgment on the generation and say each individual is different they bring certain strengths to the to the corporation and to the firm, 
And we need to honor that and build upon them. But we also need to mentor them. And I think that's the, the key to working in the generational thing is to see the myself as being older, more of a mentor role than anything. And, and then, as I said earlier, like Chip Conley says, and and be be humble enough and recognize that there's learnings there as well. There is. And I think that's true true for any form of diversity. I mean, I, I love an old Will Rogers quote, uh, and you know me well enough that if I didn't throw in at least one quote in this, it wouldn't be authentic. That's true. Uh, is, Will said, everyone's ignorant only on different subjects. And I think the opposite of that is so true as well. Everyone's smart only on different subjects. And that's the value of a diversified work team is you that enriches it with the multiple intelligences. Absolutely. One of the discussions I had with the millennial generation was, and and I'm calling them the rebel generation because I think they're they're going to change up the work work environment because they're not they're wanting to work less, work less, be more adventurous and play more. So I don't see them going into the status quo of our generation where we work 40 hours, we have two weeks of vacation a year and that sort of thing in in doing it. But that was interesting that that's one of the concepts I've learned is you have to be able to uh, allow individuals to to grow within their space and uh, working the 40 and 60 hours a week is uh, 60 hours, 60 hours a week is not beneficial to anyone. And so that generation, I think is going to really push the envelope. Yeah. So I think, I think subsequent as well. I mean, there's a, there's a professor at uh, Stanford university, Laura Carstensen, who's done a lot of work on what she calls the hundred year life. And that old, that old model of, you know, you get educated, you work, and then you retire as a sequence is going to get blown up. You know, if you've got, you know, 60 years, potential work productivity, et cetera. I think there's going to be a lot more intermittent Mm -hmm. stages where, you know, uh, people will take sabbaticals. They will, they'll move horizontally. Uh, not always just, you know, one up the ladder. Um, and I think companies are recognizing that they're having to have much more individualized conversations with their employees as to what their expectations and goals are. Right. And whether it's to, you know, take time off to have a child or to pursue some education or some other attribute, that type of flexibility, I think, is going to be increasingly a premium that all ages are going to want to pursue. I know it's true in the older generation, and I think you're seeing it in the younger ones as well. They want that flexibility. Well, my guest on the millennials was Connor Kavanaugh. And one of the things he pointed out is you're not going to see us stay with the same company like our grandparents and parents did for 30 years. It's just not going to happen. And one of the interesting things is he said, You'll never see, we won't do retirement parties. And I laughed and I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, we're going to be moving horizontal and moving. And so we're never going to retire. And I thought, well, that that is a good concept because I really don't see me having a retirement party. I might leave one job and do something else, but I wouldn't see them doing that. But I think that's interesting that that, uh, that generation is looking at the horizontal move a little differently than our generation did. So, oh, you're absolutely right. But I I would also add 
Some of that's also dictated by the approach employers have taken. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, you and I are old enough to remember that it used to be a standard. There were defined benefit retirement programs uh, that often rewarded employees for staying longer to get a pension, et cetera. And then the 401k was introduced as initially as a supplement to those pensions. And then fairly quickly, um, outside of the public sector, which still has to some degree those, those defined benefit programs, uh, it's now pretty much dependent upon the individual to have to save for their own retirement. Mm-hmm. And so your regular employer becomes less of a contributor to that. That combined with the fact that uh, almost all companies now offer some form of health insurance makes it more mobile, that and the affordable care plan helps that mobility as well. So there, I think we will continue to reinforce that type of fluidity going forward rather than the long-time, long-term employer role. So I know we've talked a little bit about the generation. So I want to go through and, and talk a little bit about perception the baby boomers might have about other generations. And so I'm going to talk, we've talked a lot about the millennials. So what, what do you think our perception is or your perception is of the millennial generation uh, <laughs> again again gary i really resist uh the the segmenting that way because it's okay. uh, my 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 experience has been uh as much as possible to set those assumptions on a shelf somewhere because i have found that each person has such an individual story right that and that it's better to to approach them as a as an individual than it is the, the characterized. Now again, uh, I would say you know a couple of millennials who grew up in a rural community may have things in common mm-hmm. versus a couple of millennials who grew up in an urban setting. Right, uh, they're going to have a different experience if that rural setting is in say you know Mississippi versus Oregon. So the, the, the diversity, I think, in so many ways, each of us, regardless mm-hmm. of where we are in, in our age, is literally becoming more individualized all the time uh, and less chances of, of being able to categorize or put in a category. We remember, again, during the, the Vietnam War, that there were veterans who came back who were very anti-war. Mm-hmm. And then there were veterans who came back and were very supportive of the war. Uh, so you couldn't, you know, you couldn't necessarily say, well, they're a pro-military and anti-military. Good example in relatively recent history was John Kerry, who, um, who was a former senator and secretary of state. Now I think the ambassador for Biden for environmental issues. He came back very much an anti-war. Mm-hmm. Advocate, so I, I I know your your program's trying to tease those out, but I'm I you know I don't go there. Okay, it's, I maybe maybe it's because all the years of just trying to avoid those stereotypes of you know women do this, men do that, heterosexuals do that. Oh, it's just it's just uh, it's been pretty much nah. Because every time I you I've done that, an exception comes up and says, oh no. It's a wrong assumption. Well, you know, I think that's a great point. And I really appreciate that uh, 
that take on it. It's something that I hadn't thought about a little bit is, but by talking about the generations and how we do it, um, it's interesting with me, the Z generation individual true wear that I interviewed for, for that segment was saying, we need to find things of more common ground instead of the negative aspects of it. And I thought, you know, that's really uh, where we need to go. So I need to rethink how we're doing our discussions with folks about what are the common grounds that we can reach. For her, ageism was one of them. And here is a a person that is in that Z group. Uh, What do you think are some common grounds that we can all have across the generations? You know, I, I I think some of those are similar to the 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 movements that were back in the '60s. So let's mm-hmm. start with the environment. I think, you know, climate change and our our current what kind of world are we living in currently from an environmental standpoint, and how do we uh, reinforce sustainability for not only while we're living but for future generations? I think that's probably one area that's extremely common. I think uh, there could be commonality around inequities in, in, in so many areas, whether it's the uh, poverty or racism or uh, nonviolence. Uh, I think there are a number of, of areas that uh, we have a common agenda on. Uh, I think the whole commitment to eliminating barriers unnecessarily whether that's in education, whether that's employment, whether that's in access to health care. I think those, those are all, I think, potentially common agendas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that this virus that we've been experiencing over the last couple of years has definitely increased our sense of interdependence, not just in the United States, but even more importantly, how interdependent we are in the greater world. You know, we still have in the United States, on all our generations in the United States, a little bit of a parochialism. Mm-hmm. You know, we think if we get all vaccines vaccinated and boosters, we're going to be okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, in an, in an interdependent world, until the majority of the planet is vaccinated, we're going to be at risk mm-hmm. uh, because the virus will continue to mutate in other places. So our awareness on the health area, more more interdependent, the climate more 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 interdependent, and economically, you know, even now, you know, the supply chain for so many of our products and services is an interdependent one. So, so I, I think those you. are those are common. I mean, they're, right. you know, each of those, you know, the power goes out in Texas <laughs> during a winter storm. It it doesn't really care what age you are. Right. And I know you have grandchildren. So what would be some advice from a boomer to uh, uh, there's a new generation out there called Alpha, which I wasn't familiar, born 2013 through 2025. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give that very young generation or Gen Z? I, you know, it would be to some degree the same advice I would give uh, any person at any age. And I, I would say this has become clear to me the older I've gotten. I, the serenity prayer of focus on what you can influence and be aware of what you can't and the wisdom and know that difference because your sense, your, your sense of agency, what you can impact and back to that attitude 
reinforce your your what you're able to do versus uh, falling into the trap of feeling like, well, I'm victimized with this. There's no question the environment's going to continue to be uncertain, uh, again, regardless of age. You know, we have the world's greatest scientists working right now on the virus, and I'll tell you the most consistent message in two and a half years is almost every one of them at different points have said, we don't know. <laughs> Exactly. We don't know. We've been behind the curve. We've never been ahead of our knowledge about it. You know, we didn't even know about Omicron when Delta emerged. Right. Um, and so the uncertainty is going to be a regular part of your life going forward. And so you can stand on the sidelines and feel victimized by that. Or you can say, OK, what areas can I impact? Right. And I get back to, to some degree, that ACME proposition, because you don't want to be isolated. Uh, you want to have some purpose and meaning. And probably the, the other key advice, regardless of age, is those who um, see a purpose outside of themselves tend to do better. They tend to thrive better. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a great uh way of, of describing how future generations need to to take what they can take away from the boomers and from our generation. Um, one of the things that I think um, that, and I, I do, when I do Uber, I always ask people, what's your philosophy on aging? And what do you think of other generations and sort of thing? Because Uber drivers are go from baby boomers down to, to Z. And one of the things that they're mentioning about our generation is that we've become extremely more conservative uh, as we've aged and that we're not understanding that we had the benefit of a cheaper education, especially post-secondary, and that we were able to live on one salary, one parent salaries, uh, and still have buy a house and do all of the things and it's changed. Uh, and why we're not willing to invest in their future by doing the same thing. Uh, do you think that's a fair analysis of, of our generation? I, you know, I, there's no question that we had policies that we put into place that uh, we benefited mm -hmm. and that uh, some populations did not benefit. I mean, the clarity now that I think around the uh, housing redlining that used to occur uh, was a clear policy of, of uh, discriminating. On the other hand, the GI Bill for many folks was a tremendous plus right. for their education and, and, and housing capabilities. So, yes, I think we, we definitely uh, benefited from those times of, of defined benefit programs, cheaper education cheaper interest rates, et cetera. Um, and for, quite frankly, I, it's my philosophy that uh, older generations both owe more to younger generations mm -hmm. as well as younger generations need to res respect and value the contributions of older adults. Right. So it's, it's very much an interdependent one. But uh, I would hope that the goal of my generation would not be how do I sit on the sidelines and watch the, da the daily travails of life. 
uh, and feel like their work is done, I would hope they think there's still opportunity for them to contribute mm-hmm. and are needed to do so. Well, I think it's interesting because when talking to my mom who turned 92 in, the, in November 25th, uh, when I talk about with her a little bit about what did her generation, and she's in the silent generation, what do you think your contributions were? And she said, we didn't avoid paying taxes. <laughs> and it, I think that kind of sums it up a little bit because that generation paid higher taxes uh, than we do currently. But they felt it was very important to subsidize higher education, subsidize in the Eisenhower's administration, the, the freeway and the interstate system to really do some of those things. And I think maybe the boomer generation has lost sight of that. They, they knew the importance that the only way you're going to be able to succeed is by helping others and you needed to help others by paying taxes. But I was very surprised that she relayed that to me, and and I went, yeah, you're you're right. So I think that that's one of the keys that maybe our generation has not not really thought about. Uh, with that, we keep everyone keeps on cutting taxes instead of uh, getting you know paying for the services for future generations. Uh, you know, I'm I'm reminded, Gary, of uh, of the concern I had back in 1980. Mm-hmm. When Ronald Reagan became president, and for the first time, I, he he sold the country on uh, and this. And I grew up in the Midwest where there was a lot of what I would call moderate Republicans. They were socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And if there was one thing I heard more than anything else was the maxim: "There's no free lunch. Mm-hmm. You don't get something for nothing." And it was in 1980 that he sold. You could cut taxes and spend more for the military uh, and the the budget would balance. And ever since 1980, I have not seen in either party, (laughs) Republican or Democrat, any any message of in order to get X, you have to pay Y. And it's a natural denial mechanism in somebody's uh, psychology background for people to want to believe there is a free lunch. Mm -hmm. You know, I can win the lottery, whatever. I don't have to save for my retirement, I can just buy a lottery ticket. But it, that's a fool's that's a fool's choice. Right. Um, and we just we need to get back to you get what you pay for. Uh, and that there's a value in paving the way for other generations, because other generations benefited you. I mean, your parents, right. my parents, our grandparents, they sacrificed in order for us to have the bounty we have now. Right. Not everyone has the bounty, but for those that do, uh, I think we owe it to uh, return, as you know, my word returnment, mm-hmm. uh, return back uh, some of that, uh, those uh, blessings that we received. Absolutely. Well, Jay, I want to thank you so much for being part of our discussion and your insights are, are greatly appreciated. And uh, it was great to have this opportunity for us to discuss aging and uh, our generation, baby boomers. Thank you. Well, I have to leave you with my favorite quote, or one of my favorites, Gary, okay. that's by Einstein that said, all theories are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> so whatever, <laughs> everything I said might have been wrong, but whatever is useful, hope your audience can find it useful. I think they will, Jay. 
Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of our first series of the podcast, Bourbon with Generations That Can Legally Drink or Not, presented by me, Gary Beagle. Be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now.